Hello friends, Stephen here. We've been doing Tent Theology now for over a year and it has been a wonderful ride. We plan to keep going with this, so don't you worry. But I did think it would be good to take the time to mention something I've never really talked about on the podcast before, and that is our Patreon account. If you go to www.patreon.com forward slash Tent Theology, you will see three different levels that you can give at. Every level gets the same goodies, which is extra material, courses, teaching, and other interviews. We try and put something up every week so that you get the Tent Theology podcast as well as the Patreon bonus episodes. Tent Theology is a labor of love. It costs some money to make, not only our time, but also to host the podcast on various websites and platforms. By giving to Tent Theology, you allow us to keep making this thing. We are so thankful for the patrons that we already have. And if you are someone who has benefited from Tent Theology or something that we've made in the past, do consider becoming a patron for as little as $5 or £5 a month. We're poised to be releasing our study of the Book of Acts on the Patreon account. Here on the podcast, we're going to release the first four episodes looking at the beginning of the Book of Acts. But then over on the Patreon account, you will get a line-by-line political theology reading all the way through to the end of the book. If you've been thinking about supporting Tent Theology, this is the best time to jump on board. Thank you for your support. Now on with the show. Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Okay, we are going to look at Acts 2 today, which is one of the most famous chapters in the New Testament. Acts 2, of course, is where the church receives the Holy Spirit for the first time. They start speaking in different languages. They start sharing everything in common. It's an absolutely central pillar to the early church and to the life of the Christians in the New Testament. And so it's well worth a look. There is a lot of politics here, and I'm looking forward to getting into it with you. The other thing to say is you might hear some lawn mowing in the background, and I don't have the heart to go out to my neighbours and ask them to stop mowing the lawn just because I'm waffling on about Acts 2. So let's see what happens if we just let them do their thing and we do ours. If you'll remember, in Acts 1, the disciples said to Jesus, in Acts 1, 6, they said to Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? And Jesus' reply was, it's not for you to know this kind of stuff. Stop thinking about it. Just go to Jerusalem and I will send my spirit amongst you and then you will be empowered to go to the ends of the earth. And the idea was the disciples are concerned about restoring the kingdom of Israel, which is the sense of the messianic expectation that the kingdom of the chosen people will be restored and preserved. And Jesus effectively says, you're thinking too small. We're going to go to the ends of the earth and we're going to go to Samaria and Judea and Jewish lands and Gentile lands. Go and wait for me or my spirit in Jerusalem. And of course, that is what they do. And they go 
to Jerusalem, and they're gathered and praying. And then in Acts 2, when Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. And Pentecost is the Jewish feast, and the, the disciples, the early church, are experiencing themselves as Jews. This is not a Gentile religion. They're Jewish, and they're keeping the various Jewish festivals. And Pentecost just means the 50 days. And then suddenly a sound from heaven, like the howling of a fierce wind, the sound from heaven, the sound from the realm of God's kingdom, the realm of where people say yes to God. It came like a howling of a fierce wind, and it fills the entire house where they were sitting, and they see all individual flames of fire lighting on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. So Jesus said, wait, you will get dunamis power, you will get dynamo power, which explodes from the inside out. You will get that power, and you'll be ready to go to the ends of the earth. There were pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. Ah, there's some connections here. It is worth mentioning, quickly, that this is Jews living in different nations. This is not yet the ends of the earth. There were more Jews living outside of Israel than were living inside. The nation of the Jews, then remember that nations and states are not the same thing. And that a state is a plot of land with a border around it or some kind of geographical location. Whereas the nations are people groups connected by language and tribe and religion and ethnicity and all these things. But they live interspersed with others in the land and they live spread out in different places and there were more Jews who did did not speak Hebrew didn't speak Aramaic they probably read and thought in other languages and the Apostle Paul was one of them he was a diaspora Jewish man who spoke and wrote in Greek for example as did all the authors of the New Testament including Luke who is writing Acts and so here we're meeting some of these people these are Jews living outside of Israel but have come to Jerusalem for the festivals and now they are going to start to hear things being spoken in their different languages and they hear the sound of people speaking in other languages and a whole crowd gathers and everybody's mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages they were surprised and amazed saying look aren't all the people who are speaking Galileans every one of them how can each of us hear them speaking in our native language there's also a little bit of class issue going on here. The Galileans are not a sophisticated group. People from Galilee, their accent was made fun of. It was a bit of a, what I suppose we could call a yokel accent. Country bumpkin, rough and ready. People from Galilee were not sophisticated. Peter is uh, recognized by his accent when he's at the fire. When Jesus is in the high priest's court and the serving girl recognizes Peter by his accent and says, you're from Galilee. So the Galilean accent, which Jesus had as well, was not a sophisticated accent. And here, the Galileans who had no business knowing all these languages. They're not really supposed to be smart enough. And they know all these different languages. Also, there's going to be a, something of a class awareness or consciousness going on because all these different Jews who are not native Israelites but are Jewish are also not speaking Hebrew or reading Hebrew. They also, their native languages are all this list. 
Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. This is described as their native language. So there's a little bit of a sense here, I think, that they're also second class citizens. Not quite up to scratch for loyal sons of Israel. Not quite on the level. And yet, this is their introduction to the words of Jesus or to the revelation of Jesus. He reaches Galileans and second-class Jewish citizens first. And there's a long list here uh, from verse 8, 9, and 10 of all the different types of people, including Jews and converts to Judaism, including the, the ones who were God-fearers. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the mighty works of God in our own languages. They were all surprised and bewildered. There's some mention here of well, what's happening in the book of Genesis. So, if you will remember, in the book of Genesis, we all know about the story of the Tower of Babel. And the story of the Tower of Babel is, of course, the story where the people, God has told the earth, the inhabitants of the earth, to scatter and to multiply. And then we're told in Genesis that they didn't scatter and instead they gathered together and decided to build a tower, which was going to reach to heaven. Now, there's a lot going on here. It's worth uh, just mentioning that the tower, of course, Babel, is the beginning of Babylon. So the ziggurat, or the huge structure that they built, was a real structure that was known, and it was uh, part of the city of Babylon. And the Babylonians called their, their city the gateway to the gods. It was this tower that was going to reach up to heaven to become once again with the sons of God. Babylonians trace their lineage from the sons of God that came from heaven, from the skies, from the heavens, uh, and then hit, landed on earth. These are the Nephilim, which get talked about in Genesis, who are the sons of God that are attracted to the daughters of men. And for the Jews, this was a point where it had to take the flood to purge this evil from the land, where the sons of God and the daughters of men are having children. But from a Babylonian point of view, this was the beginning of their nation. And this was a point of pride. And the idea is that they built a tower in order to reach back up to heaven. They are sons of God and they're going to get back up into the heavens. And in any case, the ancient Jewish storytellers use this story of the Tower of Babel as a form of political satire against their Babylonian oppressors. When Genesis was written, the Babylonians were in charge. They had taken over the Israelites. And so this story is written as a satirical jab against the powers that be. Because the Babylonians thought that their word meant gateway to the gods. Whereas in the book of Genesis, the story ends with them speaking lots of different languages and it leads to only Babel and babbling. And it's a Jewish pun because the Babylonian word for gateway to the god sounds like the Jewish word or the Hebrew word for chaos and confusion. And what happened was, of course, that everyone is speaking the same words, but they're hearing different languages. This is how they are punished, or this is how their, their organized willful disobedience or rebellion is broken up. That they can't continue the work that they're trying to do because they're all speaking 
what they think are the same words, but they're hearing different tongues. And now comes a story where the recreated people of God or the recreation of the world, remember the Holy Spirit is an agent of creation, the one who in Genesis brings order out of chaos, is hovering over the chaos in Genesis 1. And now the Holy Spirit has come on another group of people who have gathered, who have been scattered and are now gathering. And instead of them speaking one thing, but hearing different languages, they're now hearing different languages, but all speaking one voice. They all hear the same words, but from different points of view. And it's a restoration or a flip side, a mirror image to the story of Babel. And you have to think that this is more than just a story about language. This is a story about the beginning of a kingdom. The story of Babel was the beginning of the story of kingdoms setting themselves up against the people of God. The story of Pentecost is the story of a new movement, a new kingdom being set up in uh, worship of God. And there's something going on here with the languages. The other thing to point out is that a lot of Christians, especially the Pentecostal Christians or charismatic Christians, will often talk about this as the beginning of the gift of tongues. But this isn't the gift of tongues. Tongues is the private prayer language or worship language, which Paul will talk about in 1 Corinthians. This is not that. This is the gift of languages. And it's more akin to words of knowledge or prophecy. The prophetic gifts, the ones where you have knowledge or you're, you have insights that you have no business knowing. That's what this is. These Galileans had no business knowing all these languages. And the foreigners who are hearing these words being spoken are hearing knowledge or they're hearing information that the tellers had no business knowing. This, if anything, is a gift of prophecy. This is prophetic insight, God's word being spoken into situations. And the Jews from all around the world are hearing this. What does this mean, they say? And some mocked and said they're full of new wine. And then Peter stands up with the 11 other apostles and he raises his voice and he declares, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem. Listen, know this. Listen carefully. Mark my words. Something that Jesus said before he told parables, by the way. These people aren't drunk. After all, it is only nine in the morning. Notice how they are breaking social morality codes. There's a bit of politics here. The common sense, morality, the mores of society are being broken by the Holy Spirit. And this is something that we're going to see quite often now in the book of Acts, is that, as some groups will eventually say, the whole world is being turned upside down. This is an apocalyptic book. It's the end of an age and the beginning of a new one. And this kind of ages that gets ended in the book of Acts includes social morality and common sense habits, these kind of events. And here we're starting to see that even now the, the common sense habit of propriety is being broken. This is also an example, which I mentioned in the previous episode, and you're going to see more of this, of the role that theology plays and practice. So we have some bad habits in our modern world, which is we think that theology is theory 
and that it should lead to practice. Well, that's not actually what's going on, and it's not what goes on in the New Testament. The early church had it the other way around, that events happened, and then they used theology to explain what was going on. The theology wasn't the theory, so Peter didn't sit in a dark room stroking his beard saying, oh, I wonder how I can get the followers of Jesus to speak in other tongues. How are we going to get this to do it? Oh, I know. I will refer to the Old Testament prophecies and I'll give a really good sermon. And people will be so moved by my sermon that then they will start to speak in tongues. No. What happened was the events burst upon the scene, caused a lot of problems and chaos and confusion. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is able to put order into the chaos by referring to the traditions and scriptures of Judaism, of the religion and the people that Jesus came from and was incarnate into. And he does this now. He stands up and gives the first sermon that we're going to get from the early church. Remember, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young will see visions. Your elders will dream dreams. Even upon my servants, men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will cause wonders to occur in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and cloud of smoke. The sun will be changed into darkness and the moon will be changed into blood before the great and spectacular day of the Lord comes. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you go back to Joel, it's in Joel 2 that Peter is quoting from. So Joel, if you look at Joel 2, the prophecy is aimed at Israelites who are living under subjugation, under foreign rule. And you look at Joel 2, 18, for example, and the Lord becomes passionate about his land and he'll have pity on his people. And you'll see down there in, you know, verses 19 and 20 that he sends food and provision to his people and he sends the enemies away and drives them away. And the fertile land will rejoice, verse 21. And the different animals and children are spoken to in 22 and 23. I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten, verse 25. You will be satisfied and abundant. You will praise the name of the Lord. You will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God. After that, I will pour out my spirit upon everyone. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. So what's happening here is an overturning of the normal order of things or an upsetting of the political situation. The Joel prophecies are political. They're about redemption from oppression. They're about provision of food and money. They're about social classes and normal forms of life being upended. My spirit will be poured out on everyone, no longer a preserve of an elite priestly class. Sons and daughters will prophesy. So gender here is not going to be a barrier. And prophecy means, of course, speaking God's word into situations. It's always God's word into positions of power, to be honest. Truth to power is the prophetic role in the Old Testament, which is what Joel is doing here. He's speaking God's word into places and positions which claim they are powerful. And he's saying, this is going to happen. No longer will God's word or provision be something that is preserved for the lucky few or the powerful few. All people are going to have this. 
Redemption is going to come, and when it comes, you will see sons and daughters accessing the Spirit of God equally. You will see old men and young men seeing visions and dreams equally. No longer is this a preserve of a generation. This is going to span generations. It's going to span genders. It's going to span male and female slaves. They're also going to receive the Spirit. And you're going to see this. It's going to feel like, or it's going to be like, the blood and fire and columns of smoke. And the moon is going to turn to blood. And it's going to be darkness. And the great day of the Lord is going to come. And all this language, this is apocalyptic language. You'll remember, if you followed me in the Bible studies before, that this is related to, you know, Mark 13. Jesus uses this language. The book of Revelation uses this language. The apocalyptic language, or the genre here, is the language of the world is going to change. There's cracks in everything. The tectonic plates are shifting. What you thought was up is now going to be down. What you thought was blue is now going to be red. What you thought was sky is going to be sea. Right? It's this idea that everything's going to be topsy-turvy and jumbled around and changed. Your world is going to be rocked. Well, that's what this language is. When you start to see blood moons and sky turning to night and all that, that's what you're seeing is the language of apocalyptic. And apocalyptic is all about the end of one age and the beginning of another. And frankly, young men seeing visions and sons and daughters prophesying is no less apocalyptic and world-changing than is a moon turning red or night turning to day. This is what uh, Joel is prophesying here, is that the order of things is going to pass away. A new order is coming, and it's going to be redemption for God's people. And so then this is what happens in Acts. So Peter is here theologically linking the Joel prophecies of redemption of Israel to the coming of the Holy Spirit and the provision of his spirit being poured out on everybody. And he links this to being saved, to being rescued, delivered, made whole. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene was a man whose credentials God proved to you through miracles, wonders and signs, which God performed through him among you. You yourself know this. In accordance with God's established plan and foreknowledge, he was betrayed. Now look, remember, I've already said many times, the presence of miracles doesn't lead to knockdown evidence of Jesus' divinity. And even here, Peter is constantly, and Peter and Stephen will, and everyone is going to start saying, look, you saw the miracles. The miracles were evidence that someone was amongst you who you need to take seriously. They are evidence that your world has been rocked. But they're not evidence that you have no choice to follow. You get to choose. And in fact, many people choose to betray Jesus, even in the presence of the miracles, which is exactly what happens, of course, in verse 23. He was betrayed. And you, with the help of wicked men, had Jesus killed by nailing him to a cross. And the cross is the time when all the different organized evils of the world ranged against him. The same sort of impulse that leads Babylonians to organize themselves in opposition to God and his reign are the same sort of forces that organize themselves. The popular forces, the Jewish temple forces, the pharisaical law forces, and the Roman empire forces are ranging against Jesus 
betraying him, trying to preserve the little scraps of order, of old order that they had. They're part of the old guard, which are now in danger of being upset. And they're trying to cling on and claw back the power that they've lost. And uh, Peter and the others are going to say, it's, it's you who did it. You did it. You betrayed him. You organized yourselves with the help of wicked men to kill Jesus. And yet God raised him up. God freed him from death's dreadful grip since it was impossible for death to hang on to him. This is a evocative translation here from the Common English Bible. Again, the resurrection is the affirmation of the life of Jesus. It's not just a random miracle which the disciples use to somehow shock and awe believers into the kingdom. That's not what a resurrection does. It's the life of Jesus that is being affirmed here. Which is why the other disciples in the previous chapter, when they needed to appoint some more disciples to fill up the gaps, they, they chose uh, Matthias because he had been witness to the life of Jesus from the time in the wilderness onwards. Because that's what you have to be witness to. And here we see that Peter is saying, look, God raised him up. He raised up that life, freeing him from death's dreadful grip since it was impossible for death to hang on him. And when the early Christians talk about where death is thou sting, if you look at Hebrews, you look at Colossians, the defeat of death from the cross and the resurrection is the, the defeat of death's ability to have the final word on the life of Jesus. Jesus submits himself to these forces which need to get rid of him, cannot live with him, and then he comes through it demonstrating that they've thrown the worst we have thrown. We have thrown the worst we can at God, and God has come through it. He submitted to it. We killed him. We committed deicide. And then death could not hold him. This is the early Christian hope. It's not the, the miracle of the resurrection by itself that's important. It's that the resurrection of that particular life of Jesus got resurrected. That's what's important. And that's what death could not have the final say on. And this event where Jesus is against the forces of this world, the forces of stasis, the conservative clinging to the power that we have and don't want to change. These are the forces that get upended. This is the power or the, yeah, the power gets taken from those types of people and are put into the hands of everyone else like Mary's song in the beginning of Luke, where the arrogant and the proud are brought down and the humble are lifted up. This is Mary's song of what Jesus is going to do. And Luke sets that at the beginning of his gospel as a program for what's going to happen. And here it happens, or it happens yet again in Acts. In Acts 2, Luke shows us through Pentecost that the arrogant are being torn down and the poor are being lifted up. And they're being lifted up in a way that Peter describes through the prophecy of Joel. That there's no respecting of elite status. There's no respecting of inherited position and privilege. That slaves and masters, daughters and sons, old people and young people alike are having the spirit poured onto on them. And it's heard as gospel. And it's also heard as a defeat of death. Defeat of the powers of death. 
And then Peter refers to David. He does another prophecy here, and this is from Psalm 16. I foresaw that the Lord was always with me because he is at my right hand. I won't be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced because you won't abandon me to the grave nor permit your Holy One to experience decay. Death cannot hold him. And Peter is using his knowledge of ancient scriptures to theologically assess what they have just experienced. And then Peter refers confidently to the patriarch David. He died and we can see his tomb. But because he was a prophet, he knew that God promised him with a solemn pledge to seat one of his descendants on the throne. Again, this is verse 30, a connection here to the kingship of Jesus, to the fact that Jesus wasn't starting a new religion. He's not a new um, priest. He's a King David figure. He's a King David figure who has been descendant and ascendant to the throne. And David is said to have prophesied that Christ wasn't abandoned to the grave. And then Jesus is the one that God raised up. We are all witnesses to that fact. Verse 32. The fact of the resurrection is important. I hope you hear me say that clearly. And again, though, it's the life of Jesus being res resurrected that's important. He was exalted to God's right side, the place of authority. And received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He poured out this Spirit, and you are seeing and hearing it, the results of his having done so. Therefore, let all Israel know beyond question that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And we're beginning to see here the divinity of Jesus being extolled very early on in early church history. We're also seeing the kingship of Jesus, the Christ figure, the anointed one, is being extolled here. And Jesus is being explained in terms of creation with Holy Spirit. He's being explained in terms of kingship with King David. And then Peter replies, change your hearts and lives. Repent, which is what Jesus said. Repent. Each of you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism is the saying goodbye or death to the world and habits of life that you were born into and the associations that one had and saying yes or affiliation to the person of Jesus. So it's, it's a, it has to do with allegiance and whose family you're in. You have to die to one family to be born again into another. And baptism is the symbol for that. And then you'll receive the gift of Jesus' Holy Spirit when you are in his family. This promise is for you, your children, and everyone who is far away, as many as the Lord our God invites. And we're starting to see the expansion now of the kingdom from just the Jews to the whole world, which is one of the key themes in the book of Acts. With many other words, Peter testified to them and encouraged them, saying, Be saved from this wicked and perverse generation. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized. God brought about 3,000 people into the community on that day. The wicked and perverse generation, this generation is a good word to think about. The generation is the age. Sometimes you might even call it the, the aeon or the, the era. The present generation is like the present order of things. It's related, in fact, to John 3.16, where God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whosoever believes in him, should have eternal life. And the word eternal there actually has elements 
of connections to the word generation because eternal has to do with the age or the era and generation here has to do with the current status quo and Peter is saying come out of this generation which is defining your reality come out of these mindsets and habits that are determining your identity and what you think you should do about it change your hearts and your lives die to the current generation die to the current age and be born into a new one come under a new rule come under new management those who accepted Peter's message were baptized God brought about 3,000 people into the community on that day. Verse 41. My friend Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish rabble-rouser who I often talk about, he is quite humorous on this point because he's keenly aware of the problem of Christendom, which is the problem of Christianized culture, where people have lost the ability to think of themselves as disciples of Jesus, and instead they think of Christianity as a group movement that they're just born into. And he looks at church history and he says, when did this problem happen? When did people start to think of themselves as Christian because they were born into a certain culture? Because they were just part of a mass movement rather than because of an individual choice they had to make. And he looks at church history and he wonders whether it happened with Constantine, who made Christianity no longer illegal when he took over Rome. Or maybe it happened, you know, with the reformers or something like that in European Christendom, and he says, no, I think it happened at this point, when 3,000 were added to their number in one day. Because for all that there was real converts at this time, how many people just looked to their right and to their left and thought, well, if everyone else is doing it, I suppose I better as well. In any case, we do see that the Acts image here is of lots of people joining, joining a movement, but we're also beginning to see, and we're going to see it in a, in a bit, how the addition of all these people is not the same as the addition of disciples formed in the image of Jesus. So joining a movement, this is, this is, Kierkegaard was right, this is the beginning of some good new things that are happening in the Christian history, but it is also the beginning of some problems that did not exist before. And one of those problems is, is we're going to see it, but the problem of nominal Christianity, that it's very easy to hide in a group when there's a big enough group. So 3,000 are added to their number in one day, and the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meal and their prayers. And a sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. See, this has not ended, and Acts is not embarrassed by these things. And all the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple. See, they're still Jewish. And they ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved, those who were being brought out of the wicked generation and into the new one. I'm going to speak more about the sharing of everything and and all what that means, it comes up again in Acts 4 and in Acts 5. So we're going to talk about it when that shows up. But needless to say, note how political all this is. That this chapter 2, Acts 2, which is in some ways the archetypical spiritual chapter, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the spiritual gifts, is told through and through from beginning to end 
in terms of politics, social relationships, social dynamics being upended, foreigners speaking different languages, class differences being ignored, gender differences being ignored, and people sharing so open-handedly with each other materials and resources and possessions that normally they would be clutching tightly to out of fear of what the world was going to bring them. And here the first fruits of a Holy Spirit spiritual encounter are socio-economic. They are an upending of social morality, economic common sense, linguistic and ethnic barriers. This is the first effect of the Holy Spirit. So if you think that Christianity is primarily a spiritual activity which doesn't have any bearing on the social, economic or political facts of life, well then you're just not paying attention to the first and best images we have of the people who knew Jesus. We will meet again for Acts chapter 3 in the next episode. I am very glad to welcome to the tent Christopher Marchand and Natasha Beckles, my two cohorts and colleagues who help me debrief these Acts sessions. So today we are talking about Acts 2, and Natasha Beckles is a priest in the Anglican Church. She has been a teacher, a youth worker, and all sorts of exciting things. And I wonder, Natasha, what in the world does Acts 2 mean to your working life? Has, what, what does it mean to you? What, what kind of place does Acts 2 have in your, um, your mental space? I suppose it's the way that you're taught about it. You know, it's like in evangelical circles, it's very much taught as the birth of the church. And um, in my home church, um, you know, we would be very much dressed up in colors and all the rest of it. And really what for Pentecost about- Sunday? Yeah, on Pentecost Sunday and feeling bonded together as the church and thinking about what that means. Um, what I find beautiful about it is that it's vision, you know, which to me is like a vision of heaven that, you know, people would, that that unity and diversity would just be um, caught up in, you know, one drop, one moment, you know, that you can see it in, in all sorts of ways. And particularly coming from my kind of education backgrounds, I'm really English. Yeah, I'm really interested in English as an additional you are really English as well. <laughs> yeah, I happen to be. But um, children learning that and, you know, to really think about how language is valued. And I know that I push for that, that people get to pray in more than one language because you better get used to it. Heaven is not going to be what you thought it was going to be. So it's, I, I find it really encouraging um, that it's always been God's heart. Do you have much? Uh, did you come? Have you ever had much? contact with the Pentecostal kind of churches or Pentecostal side of Christianity? My mother's a Pentecostal. Okay. <laughs> okay. I quit going to church pretty early. <laughs> I quit going to church at three. I told my mom I'm not going back to church. <laughs> and so she, I was homeschooled in Jesus, but I didn't know much about church. So in terms of that, um, I kind of came back to Pentecostal church when I was about 23 stuff and just floated around because you're talking out here about the other languages, but in a turn in terms of like you know English and Urdu and, uh, yeah, and yeah. French and German. But what about 
speaking in tongues well. yeah is that has that ever been much of a of a of a kind of does that figure on your yeah, landscape yeah definitely and I think I've I've, I've grown in layers of understanding that because I think at points people sing in tongues I can sing in the spirit naturally anyway so in that sense but you you I I often saw worship just for the joy aspect but there is a an aspect of singing in tongues where it's grief and it's beyond words to be able to say and you, it needs to bypass that and um you know sometimes church can hold this kind of toxic positivity that we're just happy and we're just happy and we're just happy and I love the fact that you know people sing in the spirit and grief comes out as well lament comes out as well and that God has that ability to move it and to watch it burst in tension you know when when the church is gathered or whatever or to bring us to a particular point so it's, it's a it's a beautiful thing it's, it is a beautiful thing Chris what what kind of I mean are you, you you used to come from a Pentecostal charismatic church didn't you or yeah, absolutely uh assemblies of God so was it was speaking in tongues was that the the big focus or was it the other languages like what what part of Acts 2 was did you take away from what your church background yeah you made a differentiation in in your talk you know between what happened on Pentecost and then uh, this understanding of of tongues as a prayer language uh, right. So, yeah. so there's the gift that's been given to the congregation or to the gathered people. And then there's what is more of your own prayer language. And so, yeah, which isn't actually what's happening here in Acts 2. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. We all just take that away from it. Yeah. 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 So, and it's interesting, like over the years, I've, I've read some, a decent amount of articles. I mean, there's, there's some pastors, uh, like uh, there's a prominent pastor. I, I think he's still alive. Jack Hayford is his name. And he would often tell stories of even himself like he would speak in tongues and like there was a, a native american man who heard him and understood him I, you know again right. I, I can't verify the stories i'm drawing from the stories of my youth yeah um, but I, i've heard these stories you've too, heard yeah. these stories and they understand then i've also read more scholarly articles about how the early pentecostals in the early 20th century they they were attempting to uh, use they, they thought that the gift of of tongues would be like used as an evangelistic tool and then they realized right. it wasn't quite working out that way there's a, there's a lot of interesting research into like pentecostal studies that that there's a part of me that's like man i need to go i want to go off and read about you know 10 of those kind of books and see what they're saying so like people people going to another country thinking i don't need to learn the language because yeah. i have the gift and then those early right. pentecostals got really disappointed because they're like oh i don't think we are speaking real languages right now and uh <laughs> and they were doing they were they thought it was going to work somehow so i mean it's just some fascinating studies have been done yeah <laughs> Here's what I want to say, though. Growing up in a Pentecostal church, we didn't celebrate Pentecost as a as a church calendar day. It just didn't happen. I don't know about you, Stephen. Um, so it's funny. As I've gotten older, I've seen some Pentecostal churches start to like do that more, which I I think is lovely. I think it's very important, uh, but not for us. I mean, we talked about it all the time. We had. Uh, interpretation of tongues within the assembly so if it if it got if a prophecy of a if a a word in tongues came up we would wait for an interpretation right. according to paul and first right, corinthians right. so we had a lot of yeah, that right. uh but a lot of prophecy as well we would we would have prophets come visit us and yeah but of course of course here in acts too that's that's not what's well prophecy is happening but not not kind of tongue speaking in a private prayer language. they heard it's, in their own languages yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's it's that more that kind of prophetic like people speaking with knowledge they shouldn't have had. They had no business having, right? That's right. 
So it was more of that. And then it's literally prophecy because it's about the Joel and the Joel. Pro- like it's very, like I've said, you know, it's very political and it's all about. So it's, it is. I do think that maybe the way Natasha started us off is, is actually more of the, the takeaway from Acts 2, which is lots of different, is there's a socio-political thing, like there's lots of different people all together in one room and that's what the kingdom looks like. It's not crazy uh, people sort of speaking in weird moon man languages from the front, right? Which there is a place for that, like, like you both pointed out. But I feel like Acts 2 is not actually about private prayer language what about the other stuff what about the sharing all things in common how do you preach that you guys you you're both leaders of churches how do you preach that when that comes up oh I think get on and preach it that's what you understand it to be I'm I'm one of those people that you know I'm listening to church trying to bend itself in shapes to re um market rebrand what Jesus says and heard people talk about wanting to recapitalize the poor and i'm just like what does that even i don't mean? buy that babe because what do you mean yeah, that yeah. means you don't give away any money yeah exactly <laughs> and you know you're you're still hoarding a little bit a lot and um you're not able to talk about it in that kind of way so sharing everything in common is quite different to um some of the kind of status quo stuff have you ever experienced that have you ever experienced the sharing something like what we see here in Acts 2? What, through church? Yeah, or through followers of Jesus community. I don't know if church is the same thing as the followers of Jesus, but you know what I mean. Have you it ever experienced be, that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the whole point of this podcast. Well, yes, I have. I've been much loved, much loved, much um, cared for by people, supported by people, you know, people sharing when I didn't have. Uh, and it's as much about that journey of being able to receive as well, um, as much as, as give, because in terms of, it's a two-way thing, isn't it? If you're not, if you're too proud to receive, that's as much a problem <laughs> as, as it is not being able to release things. But I, I know some amazingly generous people who shame me every, well, they don't shame me, but they, they show me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, they show me what that looks like and like that kind of courage. And you know, you always we we know this from the kind of stats. You go to the poorest parts of the world and their generosity is just ridiculous in you know, in the face of all the things that they have. You go to the poorest parts of London or whatever, and that willingness to share and make do and whatever is 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 incredible. So there's something that these are people that Jesus identifies with, so he knows a lot about it, knows what he wants. Chris, do you um like you live in the land of the capitalist? What do you think about capitalizing the poor or recapitalizing? I do want to say, don't blame Chris for the land of the capitalist. That started right here in London. It started in, in the UK, London, Scotland. I think. Well, let's blame the Scots for that. Oh man, <laughs> oh, man. I just saw I just saw a post. I'm, I have like three points right now, so uh, let, let me get them all out. But my first point is a jab at, at the British, uh, which is there's a the, probably the most celebrated holiday in all across the world but it's celebrated at on different days all around the year is independence day from britain day yeah yeah <laughs> it's the most the most celebrated holiday in the whole world all around <laughs> all around the oh, world. different countries yes okay that's, that's my little fun little jab um the first thing i want to say though about about this and sharing all things in common is I, I've been blessed tremendously myself. Like right now, um, I'm on an Apple computer and those things are not cheap. And 
um, I a couple of years ago, my computer just like, you know, went bye bye. And it was through generosity from people that love me and care about me in my church. And I'm just, I'm astounded sometimes. Like, I, and I'm just really grateful for the local church. And I think, I think, because I'm going to get to America in a second here, but sometimes we get so wrapped up in like the, these horrible, <laughs> this horrible stuff that we see going around, around us that we forget about just this humble generosity that doesn't seek any attention for itself. And just like, yeah, yeah, I can, I can help you out. What do you, what do you need? And I'm like, uh, $2,000, um, you know, <laughs> and they're like, okay, sure. That's fine. That's fine. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, but they're, they just do it. Um, so that's, that's, that's my thing about that. Now, my, my thing about America is I, I have direct proof that America isn't a Christian nation. I mean, and, and, and the proof is that there are so many rich people here. Like right. we, you can look at us and go, obviously they're not taking Jesus and the apostles seriously because they think being wealthy is an American ideal. Obviously we're not Christ, Christ followers here. Just, just by simple basic evidence. Um, and I, I, and I think what I'm really curious about is how we as a church culture might be able to disciple people into this concept of, you know what, I don't think anybody should be rich. It doesn't mean they shouldn't make money, but being rich is a different, is a different idea altogether. And uh, I'm curious, I'm really curious about like what churches can do about that kind of, that conundrum. I mean, it's, deeply ironic isn't it that the the types of churches that most love pentecostal acts 2 are also the ones that least would like you to say god doesn't want you to be rich i don't think that's fair i think i think a lot of church <laughs> denominations are hiding a lot of nonsense so they look at the pentecostal and go yeah it's them <laughs> it's just them and i'm like no you too i mean all right serious serious income ill-gotten gain that we know about we well i'm know not standing about. up for the church of england either that's for sure <laughs> yeah, well but they're not apparently unlike you i actually quit my them. job <laughs> i actually quit my job working for the church of england natasha so <laughs> well i i was called by jesus so i'm just getting on with instructions so from that point of view i mean where where i'm i'm being facetious but yeah the ill-gotten gains i mean literal like slave money you know slavery mm -hmm. plantation money building the church of england and it's just yeah there's i actually have a friend who's trying to work on a project of like how to help old legacy institutions deal with that and what they do about it you know it's funny it's it's money going into institutions which really trips people up isn't it it's it, money really is one of the main things that kind of and i i did want to throw a little span in the works because you know you do have people like abraham walking around and joseph these people there's certain people in the bible that do have money and resources but i i suppose chris i wanted to ask you what do you see as the difference between being rich or wealthy or, yeah. or is there a kind of godly wealthiness <laughs> I yeah don't understand. Yes, i think so yes. there is Come on, chris. it's a really good question it's funny actually i teach a bible study at a at a retirement home at once a week. And, and we were talking about this very subject because it came up in the gospel of Mark, which we're reading through. And, uh, and I think it looks like a couple of things, but uh, they mentioned like the, uh, the former person that owned holiday Inn uh, hotels here in America, you know, they're pr still pretty prominent. He was just the kind of guy that would just keep giving stuff away. Um, and I think maybe that's, it looks like somebody like that, 
maybe living in a decently nice house, but they don't really have that much more than that. They just live on what they can live and they continually give away. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, mm-hmm. so like, I think that's the irony of, of like, a, a, what, would, what would Jeff Bezos, Amazon guy look like if he was giving 90% of it away? What would that look like? It would yeah. just be, it would blow our minds. <laughs> I do think I had to, I had to do a bit of teaching on this, Natasha, once for the Sermon on the Mount and doing some research into it. And it's, I mean, the sim- I would say the kind of simple thing is that the difference, there's a difference between being rich and being wealthy. Uh, and that being rich is when you have more than enough and being wealthy is when you have all that you need, which is different, right? And because so, so some of that stuff about like the rich who store away in barns and who are, the idea is that you're being rich is actually bad because you're taking things out of circulation that could be out there, that could be kind of, you're locking stuff away which other people need right that's the kind of line that i often take i don't it doesn't always it's hard to talk about sometimes but because it's hard to know when when you've crossed the line between having more than you need and exactly what you need but i think there's something in there i think it's one of those things that's so difficult because you know people might say oh they were jealous of something or whatever but nobody thinks that they were rich or that they're wealthy you know, and, and we have all been told that you're in whatever percentage because you've got a fridge and you've got a microwave. Yeah. So nope. in terms we don't of, feel rich. Yeah. Yeah. You don't yeah. feel it. But yeah. um, in terms of just understanding what choices that you do have, what's available to people, you know, they, there's all sorts of opportunities. But still, you know, in the UK, we've just had this 20 pounds being taken from universal credit, which is the equivalent of our kind of welfare yeah. um, situation. And that's caused some gusto put it that way well there's no doubt that we uh demonize or or scapegoat the poor for sure like we just always take it out of anything to do with welfare or the poor that's that's who gets cut and um it does show some kind of to me this is where the church could be prophetic or where the followers of jesus could be prophetic where they just don't the state isn't going to help like even 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 the welfare state might have good things going for it but it's not going to help in the end because it's always aggressively being cut yeah yeah well we 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 are at the point that you know we're we're reliant on christian footballers to point out that you're not feeding children here in the uk and we the church is not you know to me not saying enough about these things and, and definitely it's in our job spec to be talking about this stuff so in terms of in terms of that it would be um it, 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 perhaps we don't understand it you know there, there's that whole kind of uh, looking from within the church about uh, you know I take I fully take Chris's point there's there's people who are on the ground who you know whether they're grandmothers or just hugely generous people doing all of this everything from hospitality to you know buying your stole or whatever it, whatever it is that they're loving on you but we have this other kind of layer of um, church that it seems to be very ambitious um you know wants to talk about the house that they got you know and 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 that that is heartbreaking because you know you're you're following a man that came in on a donkey you know was dragged out on a cross and in between there didn't have anywhere to relay his head so at what point are you not reflecting that narrative and you don't have any kind of solidarity with the people that are experiencing that and you've got no kind of proximity to it, no kind of insight and no kind of anger. And, you know, there is that sadness 
grief and that anger that comes from when you see that you know the image of God is being just wasted away like that whether it's in homeless situations or whatever you know I, I sadly I got to see that in a in a, an amazing school but seeing you know young lives not being um, developed in the way that they should do just for issues like money just for issues like opportunity uh, when we live in quote a first world country it's just that it's an absolute disgrace really what do you think of what do you guys think of the the emphasis in, in the early church in the book of acts whatever is that a lot of this stuff was actually focused kind of inward as it were like the they weren't giving all they had they weren't selling their fields in order to serve like the wider society they were selling their fields in order that there would be no poor amongst them right so what what, what do you think about that like that that kind of idea of like the followers of jesus take care of each other first or they take care of their own first like that just sounds awful to say it seems deeply unchristian doesn't it I, it does I, I think there's a similar question that i'm always asking um I'm, I'm in the process i haven't started it yet but there's this book that came out in america it's actually similar to what you've talked about with uh, established institutions and how to help the fact that money was raised off of slavery uh, it's a book it's just called reparations and it's by two uh theologians here in america and to me, that, that it's that same question that we can have now, which is, should the church advocate within the government for change? Or should should we just be bringing about the change right. within ourselves? I think it is a similar just, question. Just get your house in order and do it. Yeah. Exactly. And don't, don't try and agitate. I, I don't have an answer for you. I have no, I, I, I don't have. I know. Yeah. It isn't, there isn't an answer. That's, those are just the two options, really. I, I think it has to be both. Because if you think about the, where the church was, the early church was, you know it was attracting the poorest people you know it wasn't the bougie religion at all and in that sense people had needs and you had to look after you've got widows that are there people who you know who need to be fed and they're quickly starting to see the kind of ethnic issues which are you know our one-on-one sin how to how to divide ourselves from other people 50 different ways that you can do that that's a human kind of condition and <laughs> In, in terms of that, they, they're addressing those issues amongst them. But I think it's like, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't, you, you do not have the capacity. You cannot love a child, a partner, anybody, unless you have some level of love for yourself because it's a reflection. It's, you know, it's didactic or you, you, you are, it's an I vow type moment. You have to be part of those two um, dynamics and that's why our relationships are so important in Christianity it's not you as an individual it's you plus the network of people that God has placed you in and given you opportunity to interact with how do you love them and as and and I think you know I, I was talking about it the other day that you know sometimes you have these conversations about oh this heinous something happened and they took somebody else's humility, um, humanity away from them. And I just think, no, that's not what happens. When you, Cain kills Abel, Cain is marked on the forehead. It's, it's his humanity that is broken. Um, Abel, Abel is fully human <laughs> and remains so in that sense. And, you know, understanding that the way that you love other people actually is a reflection of how you have loved yourself. If you can't respect other people, you don't respect yourself. If you can't care for somebody, you know, and 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 I just think we we just haven't figured that out. I do well. think there's something like that. The 
the way the church, the early church cared for, the way that it sort of prophetically showed that it was the new creation was that they took care of themselves and then anybody could join. Like, so it wasn't like they said, we either take care of ourselves or we do stuff for the rest of the world. It was essentially like, we're doing something for the world by taking care of ourselves because we are creating the space where goodness is happening and anyone can join. Chris, what were you going to say? Yeah, I actually, I have a maybe a slightly different point, but really it kind of relates to what you're just saying. You asked at the beginning, like, how do you, how do you both preach this? And yeah. I think the thing that has grasped, grasped me the most over the years, and you mentioned it in your talk, is this instance of Pentecost as a reverse babble. As, right. as a reverse babble. And so uh, I have a passage here that I just like to read. It's like a paragraph or so. The book is called One Bread, One Body, and it's by a church, uh, church music historian, ethnomusicologist. See, his name is C. Michael Hahn. Uh, really, you know, so I, I, this is what I did in seminary. I read all these music books and all this kind of stuff and, you know, multicultural things. And the foreword is by a church historian, Justo uh, Gonzalez. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a relatively prominent. Here's what he says about Pentecost. But his introduction to the book is about Pentecost and how it is a, it is a model for what our church worship can look like when we gather together. So here's what he says. He says, what happened at Pentecost was that at the very moment of its birth, the church was crossing cultural boundaries in such a way that it would be just as much at home on one side of the boundary as on the other. The church is multicultural by birth. If all this is true, then Pentecostal worship must cross boundaries. And he doesn't mean Pentecostal tradition. He just means wor worship in the spirit of that day. Uh, it must cross boundaries so that those from one side of the boundary will be as much at home in the church from those on the other side. And this in turn, in turn implies that in, in Pentecost worship, the gospel is always to be shared in such a way that power and control are also shared and even relinquished by its previous owners. And uh, yeah, I, I, I still remain challenged by that. And I just think, I just think about how there's, there's many things that made me think about, but just how, Worship itself is a political act, especially when the people gather and sing in one voice. And, and what Pentecost shows us that is that we can sing in one voice, but multiple languages even. And that means that God, God blesses the nations. God blesses all the places that we've come from. And, you know, yeah, so I, I'm pondering what that means for me, for me to relinquish my power. I haven't, I, I'll, I'll let you know when I get there, but I, I'm still pondering that. So I'm, I was curious what, what thoughts struck you as I read that. Yeah, so I was, as you were reading it, what came to mind was um, just thinking again about the Trinity and this power releasing that goes, you know, God be the authority of God, the kind of him as a source, but he's releasing power to the Son, who's releasing his power to the Holy Spirit, that's bringing it back round. And this, we have um, a very old, like, um, school song you know lord of the dance but this dance that go continues i know you know this song because they're that old but um you know this dance that continues within the trinity and if it's that much of and it's something that is practiced you know before the beginning of time it's it's part of the movement it certainly has to be part of creation it certainly has to be part of our um human relationships political relationships economic relationships has to be there and um, as Christians we should be going to do that.
That's fantastic. Uh, Natasha, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on this little debrief through Acts 2. And uh, please come back for our final debrief on the next episode of the Acts Studies. Can I ask you to come back again? I'll be here. Fantastic. I'll be I will here. See you soon. <laughs> Bye, friends. Bye. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.